You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, as, as James rightly said, um, my, the title of my sermon today is Holiness and Hardship. The problem with titles is that um, I have to come up with them before I have thir- completely thought about the text. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot about holiness and hardship in here, but I'm actually going to focus on another H word today, uh, and that's hope. Uh, hope really is the, the, the ringing theme here um, that makes us holy uh, and sustains us through hardship. So the focus here today is going to be on hope. Don't be dissuaded by the title. Sometimes I hit it with the title, sometimes I don't. This one was a miss. Um, this is just the second sermon in this new series in the New Testament letter called First Peter. Last time we looked at the introduction, just the first two verses, where we... Uh, saw how Peter identified Christians as resident aliens. Uh, resident aliens on earth. We're here, but this isn't our permanent home. And now, in the, in the next section, we're going to learn that even though th- this isn't home for us, and because it isn't home, it presents a lot of challenges to us, we have, as believers in Jesus, a powerful hope that sustains us uh, through those challenges. So we're going to look today at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in the bulletin for you. I'm going to ask if you would stand one more time, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And... Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, uh, please forgive the preacher his sins and help me now to communicate clearly and truthfully what you are saying to us through your servant Peter and help all of us, including the preacher, not just to hear what you have to say, but to live it 
in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, in 2019, end of 2019, right, ironically, right before the coronavirus pandemic uh, emerged, the Brookings Institution, uh, that iconic uh, think tank in Washington, D.C., issued a study on the role of the loss of hope in deaths of despair. Now, a death of despair is a death caused by suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol-related disease. The study identified a number of risk factors that lead to deaths of despair, including poor health, job loss, uh, declining job opportunities in the marketplace, limited social contact and social ties, But the study found that by far the most significant factor, uh, contributing factor in deaths of despair was the loss of hope. Now, if that's true in 2019, it's certainly even more true, I suspect, in in these COVID times, post-COVID times, where we have heard about... um, the, the impact of, of you know, all these societal changes on, on our hope. And, and it has caused a lot of people to lose hope. And, to, uh, and we've seen a, a rising count of uh, de- deaths of despair. But, you know, it's interesting. As I was studying for this sermon, I remembered some stories, and I, I, I looked them up, about the fact that losing hope itself can kill you, right? It's not just that a loss of hope leads you to do something self-destructive. It's that the loss of hope itself can kill you, particularly under intense circumstances. What I was remembering were, were POW stories. And uh, I remembered one in particular. I looked it up. Uh, regarding Admiral James Stockdale. Some of you will remember James Stockdale, true American hero, known perhaps unfortunately, probably best for the fact that he was Ross Perot's running mate uh, back in the day. But James Stockdale was a pilot. He was shot down over Vietnam, uh, captured uh, and, and survived eight years in the notorious Hanoi Hilton prison. When he got out, uh, he was interviewed, and w- w- an interviewer asked the question, "What a, you saw a lot of uh, fellow American prisoners who did not survive. You know, what was the difference? What, uh, you know, who, who survived, who didn't? And, and, and Stockdale replied, oh, that's easy. The optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, well, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and then they died of a broken heart. You can repeat that story over and over and over again among prisoners of war. Sometimes the loss of hope just causes them to curl up and die. So, so hope is really a life and death thing we're talking about here. We can't really live without it. And the good news that Peter was communicating to to Christians who were 
living under circumstances that were undermining their hope is that they had a powerful hope that that was uh, that could not be undermined that was uh, not affected by uh, their circumstances and if you're a christian today it, you also have that same powerful hope it can't be undermined it can't be undone by your circumstances so we're to unpack what peter says about hope here under two headings uh, first the roots of Christian hope, and then secondly, the results of Christian hope. Okay, The roots of hope and the, and the results of hope. And then uh, I'll close it out with a couple of quick applications. So first, the roots. The roots of Christian hope. Peter identifies three here, uh, and they're all in verse three. Right? The first root is God's great mercy. That's where it starts, right? According to his great mercy. Hope is something you ultimately get and enjoy by the mercy of God. It's a gift from the worthy to the unworthy. I did some reading both online and at Barnes and Noble about hope. A lot written about hope these days. And so much of what's written about hope uh, from a non-Christian perspective, is is very prag- are, are very pragmatic strategies about what you can do to internally generate hope. But but the message here to you as a Christian is: stop trying to create hope. It's it's not something you create. It's something that comes to you from the outside. It comes to you from God by His mercy. It's a gift of his mercy. That's the first root. Second root, also verse 3, is that what God does in his mercy that, that brings you hope is cause you to be born again. See that? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now that, again, underlines that this isn't something you do, right? Um, the... Part of the brilliance of that metaphor is, is that it, 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 you know, it communicates that. That, that, that you know, no, no one births himself and no one rebirths himself. This is something that God causes to happen to you. Again, it comes from God outside to you. I know, I realize, born again is a phrase that we've sort of wrecked. We've wrecked from overuse and we've wrecked from misuse. Uh, Too often, it gets used to describe a certain kind of Christian, a subclass of Christians. You know, I'm a born-again Christian as opposed to another kind of Christian. Um, But the the fact is, there is no other Christian than a born-again Christian. Jesus uh, made that clear. Um, It was Jesus who, in fact, first used that born-again metaphor uh, when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a devout uh, religious leader, expert in the Old Testament, 
And, and, and Jesus tells him, look, unless you're born again, you, you don't even have the ability to see the kingdom of God. Now, this is, this is a religious guy. This is a guy who knew his Bible. And Jesus is saying, look, unless you go through this, this process that, 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 that God causes to happen, you, you, can't, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Think about birth, generally, right? To, to, to be born is to, if any living being born is born we know with with its own nature and it's it you know it's you're not going to be born one species and and become another you are born with a nature and you are stuck with the nature that you are born with so if you are born a snail right you you have some ability uh, uh, you you know a snail has a certain perception of its environment but it's pretty limited right uh, but then now think about your dog. Your dog uh, is born, at, and he's a little higher up on the food chain, uh, and the dog has, has a broader and more sophisticated perception of its environment um, by its nature. And of course, at the top of the food chain, you and I, right, human beings, we have the highest and most sophisticated perception of, uh, of our environments. But what Jesus says is that apart, even though we are at the top of the food chain, even though we are this sophisticated creature made in the image of God, apart from being reborn, you and I and Nicodemus don't have the ability to perceive a particular part of our environment. We can't perceive a whole dimension of reality, which is the kingdom of God, right? That, that, the, the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God. So when God causes you to be reborn, you are, th- that rebirth is, you are now a human being still, but you have a different nature. You have a nature that allows you to perceive a greater part of your environment. You can now perceive the kingdom uh, of God. Amen, Amen, indeed. Um, And so what happens? Well, when that happens, Jesus, who more or less didn't matter to you before, uh, becomes someone you acknowledge as Lord, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that's, that's a telltale sign of being born again that you now recognize that this name uh, is, is a living being who is your Lord. He has authority over you. You are subject to him. You recognize that you need mercy, that you, your life needs saving. Really what you become when you are born again is is the person that that Peter describes here in verses 8 and 9. He's describing born-again people. Though you have not seen him, that is, we have not physically seen him like he did, right? Peter had lots of physical memories, memories of physical sightings of Jesus. But now he's writing to Christians like us, who, who, who had never seen him with our physical eyes, but he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, people who have woken up because we have a new nature to this whole dimension of reality that is Jesus. Let me make that, let me bring it home a little bit, okay? Give you an example. As I was thinking about these issues, suffering and hope, and I know so many of you are suffering, and so many of us have, have, have had our, our hope challenged and dashed. I was, and I was, as I was thinking about that, I remembered a book I had read a few years ago, and I talked about it in, in at least one sermon, um, and some of you went out to get the book. It was, uh, it was, the, the book is titled, When Breath Becomes Air. And it's an c- absolutely compelling and moving memoir of dying, written by a brilliant uh, neurosurgeon at Stanford University by the name of Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi, as he tells us in his memoir, was, was raised in a Christian home, but he walked away from all of that, uh, rejected it uh, decisively. Um, quoting him now, he said, I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the possibility of a material conception of reality, an ultimately scientific worldview that would grant a complete metaphysics minus outmoded concepts like souls, God, and white men in bearded robes. So you can, you can see where he, where he was headed. You can, you, can, you can sense what his attitude toward uh, his Christian upbringing was and towards Christianity. He rejected it. And so he spent the next decade, really, of his life, his 20s, uh, as he was moving through various graduate schools, uh, building that worldview, developing that materialist worldview. But he ultimately... <laughs> came to the conclusion that he couldn't do it. That it, that it and and I'll, I'll quoting him now again, he says this, science may provide the most useful way to organize empirical reproducible data, but its power to do so is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life simply because they're not empirical or reproducible, and that's hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, and virtue. He was struggling. that Those things that were so important to him, such an important part of not only his life, but human life generally, was just not explainable by the scientific worldview. So what did he do? Well, again, quoting him, he said, I returned to the central values of Christianity, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. He goes on, and the New Testament says, you can never be good enough. And goodness is the thing. And you can never live up to it. The main message of Jesus is that mercy trumps justice every time. I want you to, do you hear what he, what, what you're, what, do you hear those words? What, what you're hearing, right, 
is the voice of a brilliant neurosurgeon educated at Stanford, Cambridge, and Yale. And then after Yale Medical School, returned to Stanford to to do his residency. Literal brain surgeon. Um, Whom God caused to be born again. Paul Kalanithi believed and loved Jesus. Paul Kalanithi saw his need for forgiveness and mercy. Paul Kalanithi knew he had a soul and knew it needed saving. Because he was born again, Paul Kalanithi was perceiving a whole other realm of reality. And so do you, Christians. It's encouraging to read those testimonies. So the roots are... God's great mercy, which causes us to be born again. And then the third root of your Christian hope is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As my old professor and former New Life pastor Ed Clowney taught me, this means that your new birth comes from the message of the resurrection, right? You are born again as you hear the good news of the resurrection. But even before that, your new birth comes from the fact of the resurrection. When Jesus came out of his tomb on that first Easter morning, he secured your salvation right then And there, right? Peter and Paul both say the same thing. One apostle to the Jews, another to the Gentiles. And effectively, it's this. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. When when God gave life to, to the dead Jesus, he gave life to you. So the fact is you have a hope that's grounded in fact, not in wishful thinking, grounded in history, not in some uncertain future. Jesus didn't make your salvation possible. He made your salvation an accomplished fact. Now you see those three roots? What kind of living hope that gives you? It's a living hope because, of course, it's, it's, it's grounded on the living Jesus who by his resurrection defeated death, right? And it's living as opposed, it's a living hope as opposed to a dead hope. Anything that's in this world that you're hoping in, that's other than Jesus Christ, is going to result in a dead hope. There's nothing in this world big enough, strong enough, long-lasting enough to secure the hope of someone like you, someone like you who is a sophisticated being made in the image of God. But if your hope is something in something that transcends this world, right? Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, now you've got a living hope. Right? One that will go with you, grow with you. 
one that will never let you down. Going back to Paul Colonisi. He was 36 years old when he died. He's lying in bed near the end of his life, now still writing his memoir. He has an eight-month-old daughter. That's his first child. She's in bed with him. Um, and he's reflecting on his life and how he had been so caught up in, in the hubris of, of, uh, of his pursuit of medicine. Um, and he reflects on all his worldly ambitions and all his achievements, which were significant. And he's realizing... And he's, he's just reflecting in this. It's like a diary. He's just reflecting that this is, these are all dead hopes now. They're dead hopes. I'm lying here. I'm, I don't have long to live. Uh, he, he realizes that none of his ambitions and achievements support him now, nor could they support anyone else, right? There's nothing like your own impending death to clarify the mind. And Colonethi was thinking clearly, quoting now, he says, everyone succumbs to finitude. Most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned. Either way, they belong to the past. The future, instead of the latter, I had always you know, imagined reaching up towards my goals of life, all that flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all the vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastes described now hold so little interest. A chasing after wind indeed. See, what Colonethi is describing, he's laying in bed and realizing, this is, if, this is my fate if all I had was a dead hope. It all means nothing. It all, it's all failing me. It's all behind me. But Kalanithi and you, if you are a person trusting in the living Jesus, have a living hope as a fact. And it's a living hope that, that exists now, but it's going to be realized fully in a fantastic future, Right? We have a future. So much of what Peter writes here about our living hope is, is future-focused, right? So much of, you know, it's, it's what, what is true about our future determines how we live and act and, uh, in the present. So those are the roots, Right? Mercy, God's great mercy, that causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which gives us a living hope that goes with us and grows with us and is going to be realized fully in a, in, a, in a certain future. Okay? So now our second heading, the results of Christian hope. There are two, Peter, there, I'm sure there are more, but Peter highlights two results here of the living hope that you have as a, as a believer in Jesus. I, I'll call the first result security, and the second result is sustaining joy in suffering. Okay? 
So let's look first at security. What Peter describes here is kind of a gospel life lock. You know, life lock? Seen their ads, heard their ads. Right? Uh, a, a service that protects your assets and that protects your identity uh, from any and all takers, guarantees it. Well, as a result of this living hope, you have, you have a gospel life lock. Right? And, and there are two parts to this gospel life lock. First, verse 4, it says, You have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept for you in heaven. That's what I want to focus on. Is, well, of course, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Right? Jesus said, Don't work for things where the moth and rust destroy. Well, what, what, what our hope is in it will, will not... Will, moth and rust won't destroy, right? It's, it's imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading. But, but the point here is, the security point here, is it's kept in heaven for you. The, the, kept is, is it, weak. It's, it's really guarded. It's guarded in heaven for you. It's not going anywhere. It's absolutely safe, right? Exactly unlike anything else you might put your hope in in this world, right? Uh, nothing has that kind of, you know, d- divine guarantee that this is being guarded for you. It's going to be here for you. You might be trusting an inheritance from, you know, your rich uncle. Uh, but, you know, wills can be changed, and, and uncles can live longer than they think and, and, and deplete the entire estate, right? You, uh, the, you might trust in your good health uh, and then wake up and realize, like Paul Colinethi at age 36, that you have stage four lung cancer. Might be... You know, you might hope in your retirement investments that you have, you've secured by all your hard work, but those retirement investments can get depleted by global recessions and ripped off by the Bernie Madoffs of the world, right? We have secu- our inheritance, which is undefiled, unfading, imperishable, is being guarded, it's being kept safe. What is that? What is your inheritance? Well, ultimately it's Jesus, right? Uh, think about this. In, go back in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 18, the, the, the land is being allotted, right, to the various tribes, and it's their, the, the tribes are getting their inheritance in the land. But God says to Aaron, right, the priest, and, 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 the, and his descendants after him, that you're not going to get an inheritance in the land because you're my priests. What your inheritance is going to be is me. God says to the priest, I am your portion and your inheritance. Wow, right? Now what we're going to hear Get back to First Peter, in the next, very next chapter, First Peter two. Peter is going to call you and me, gathered together here at New Life, a kingdom of priests. Right. 
And as new covenant priests, uh, our portion and our inheritance is none other than Jesus himself. And if we inherit Jesus, right? that's just incredible to say. If we inherit Jesus, we inherit everything. Linda reminded me of, of a great George Herbert poem called The Hold Fast. I won't, won't read the whole poem, but um, it, it says there, um, where is it, Linda? Here it is. Um, All things are more ours by being his. What Adam had and forfeited for all, Christ keepeth now who cannot fail or fall. All things are more ours by being his. Parents, your kids are more yours by being Jesus first. Your job is more yours by being Jesus' job first. Your salvation is more ours by being his. Our inheritance is more ours by being him. And he's keeping everything that Adam lost, and he's keeping it for you. It's it's just amazing, isn't it? Um. But that's just the first half of this, the first part of this gospel life lock system, right? Now, that's verse 4. Second half is verse 5, which says you, as a Christian, are also, are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is your inheritance guarded for you in heaven, but you are guarded. Did you catch that? I mean, it's, you know, what good would it be if, if your inheritance was there, but you weren't? God's going to get you there. Parents feel this protective instinct, right? I, I, I well remember uh, driving Sarah home from the hospital for the first time. Um, I probably drove 75 miles an hour to get there to the hospital. Um, I might have hit 25 tops <laughs> driving home, right? Why? Because I was guarding Sarah, right? I wanted to get her home. This is what God is doing for you and me. The language here is military language, right? It, it says we, we are, by God's power, being guarded. And that's, basically, it's like he's, he's put a garrison around you. God's put a garrison around you to protect you for the future he's created for you. Now, it says guarded through faith, and, and we're not going to go down that long line of reasoning but remember it's not your faith that, that guards you even our faith is, is, is God's gift we have that faith from God and he's going to make sure you have it and God is going to make sure and see to it that you get there God finishes what he starts he brings to completion what he starts 
So you see, you see what, what great living hope we have? So that's the first one, security. And this, this sort of two-sided life lock system. The second result of your living hope is that you have sustained joy in suffering. Um, this is from verses 6 and 7. The, the tenses here, are, the verb tenses are really important. Essentially, both the rejoicing and the suffering are in the sort of the ongoing present tense. They're, they're happening at the same time. This is, this is revolutionary. It's uniquely Christian. This is not saying you're suffering now and someday you will rejoice. That's true. But what this is saying is you're suffering now and you are rejoicing now. That both those realities coexist in the Christian. This is not a denial of suffering. It's not a call to be stoic in suffering. Paint on a fake smile. Right? The suffering is real. It's hard. It's painful. It's, it's a product of sin. It's, it's you know... It, we don't rejoice about our suffering. We don't rejoice about the bad things that are happening to us. And bad things do happen to us. What we're rejoicing about is that we have a hope in the middle of these ongoing awful realities. And there are a number of you need to hear that, right? Because some of you, just like Paul Colonethi, have received cancer diagnoses just recently. Right? That's, that's bad news. That's awful news. That's, that's a, 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 a tragic byproduct of living in a world that it, where, where sin is alive and well. But in the midst of it, we have hope. And that hope is a cause of, of deep joy. We, we rejoice through tears. You know, our suffering circumstances don't define us. Right? We take away your job, take away your reputation, take away your health, your family, your nice things. That's not easy. That, that, but it's not where your hope is. Your hope's in Jesus. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading Jesus. See? And in fact... What happens, what happens in verse 7, what, what Peter is describing there, and there's, the commentators are, are all over the board here, but I think, I, I'm going to give you what I think is the most faithful take on it. Is essentially what he's saying is that the more you are suffering, the more as a Christian you're driven into joy, Precisely because, and, and you know this experientially, suffering drives you into the arms of Jesus, right? Like nothing else. Where else do you go? So your faith in him grows as you run to him in your suffering. See, Christians, unlike anybody else, can, can both acknowledge and lean into our suffering. We don't deny our suffering. We don't minimize our suffering. We can acknowledge it and lean into it and say how horrible it is, but we can also at the same time lean into our joy, right? That's the rejoicing through tears. 
And what verse 7 says amazingly is that the hard times that you are going through right now are developing in you a faith as you keep running to Jesus that God himself is going to praise when you come before him. That that faith that that Jesus is building in you now through these hard times will come back to you in praise and honor from God himself. It's just mind-blowing. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When you consider what Jesus Christ did for you, the, the suffering he endured for the joy set before him, Right, which was you. And having you with him, what a privilege to be able to hope in him in these hard times. Okay, that's the, the results. Let me just very quickly, two quick concluding applications. I think this text should drive you to ask yourself a hard question. You know, have I been hoping in something other than Jesus Christ or someone other than Jesus Christ? To the extent your well-being or identity or self-worth is going up and down with the circumstances of your life may be an indicator of the extent to which you have moved off of Jesus as your living hope. And you're trying to live with hope in things that can't hold you up, dead hope. I was thinking about the other day. I remember getting really conscientious as a young dad about earthquake preparedness, right? And bought a couple of big trash cans, and we did the whole thing, right? And then when you guys called us to Escondido in 2001, you know, we're packing the thing up. I go, God, these we got these earthquake things. I don't even remember what's in them, right? So open them up, you know? This is... Now, remember, Jimmy's in like eighth grade, but he's like 6'5". You know, I pull out the clothes for Jimmy. And it's like, <laughs> it's like a onesie. <laughs> you talk about a dead hope. Here I was, right? I was this, you know, so proud of myself as a parent. You know, I'm, 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 I've got these trash cans here. I'm, I'm hoping in them when the earthquake comes. And then you open that, Jimmy, man, he could blow his nose on those clothes. Man, maybe. <laughs> Right, he certainly couldn't wear them. Yeah, what are you trusting in? Right, do do some heart searching, if you need to, and, and if you need to, repent and return to Jesus as your as your living hope. And then, second, uh, we've gone through, haven't we? And we continue to go through uh, a season of emotionally charged politics, as you know, we are in a time where we are confronting important issues in our culture, at the same time, our culture is moving away from us. It's moving away from its Judeo-Christian moral consensus that it has sort of borrowed from for generations. And that means, we're, you know, it's increasingly clear that we're not at home here. It's increasingly here that we're going to be facing challenges in the political arena. And it would be easy to get desperate, to get despairing, or to get afraid of this. 
I've been reading a book by, by a fellow named James K.A. Smith. He's a, he's a professor at uh, Calvin College. Really, he's had some... I appreciate a lot of his work. And he, he's written a book about public theology, but, you know, sort of how, how do Christians live in the public square? How do, you know, how do we do politics? And, and the, 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 the title says a lot, it, and it really could be a, sh- a short title for First Peter's letter. It's, uh, for First Peter, it's, the title is Awaiting the King. In the very last paragraph of the book, James Smith says, says that as Christians, our most revolutionary political act is to hope. He goes on, as the novelist Marilyn Robinson succinctly observes, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. To be a Christian is to be a person who engages in politics but does so without fear. Our king has told us over and over again, be not afraid. You've already heard good news that brings great joy. The king is alive and is seated on the th- his throne and he reigns. And not only that, he's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Be not afraid. That's a great ending. And, it, and it's the ending of this sermon as well. Amen. Let's, uh, let's take a moment, because I've asked you to sort of reflect on, on where your hope is and to think about, you know, politics and how you're, you know, doing in that arena. Um, and, and let's just g- it prayerfully reflect on that for just a minute or two. Um, you, you silently uh, reflect in prayer, and then, uh, and then I'll close us here in just, in just a minute. Thanks. Father, we thank you for the living hope we have in Jesus Christ. Forgive us as we've looked to other things to hope in. Forgive us, Lord, for not finding our joy in you. But we thank you that you hear us, that you forgive us, that you always welcome us back. We thank you that your mercy always trumps your justice. Thank you for your great mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.